what I'm trying to do and, and what I where I think this, you know, our skills can really be put to the best use is at this interface between clinical medicine, not only clinical medicine, but clinical research and basic research. And I think one of the great things that we can really do is, is help bring science closer to the clinic. For me, I'm, I'm really kind of right in the middle where I, I work with clinicians, I do a lot of translational research, and then I also kind of talk with and, and work with basic researchers. And I can really see that added value of serving as that link and serving as that connection. That's Dr. Ann Piantadosi, today on Behind the Microscope. I'm Bijan Sadie, and this is Behind the Microscope, a podcast about the people and process behind the scenes of science and medicine. Today on the show, we are delighted to welcome Dr. Anne Piantadosi, an assistant professor in the Department of Pathology and Laboratory Medicine at Emory University. Dr. Piantadosi earned her MD and PhD from the University of Washington, followed by residency and an infectious disease fellowship at Massachusetts General Hospital. In 2019, she was recruited to Emory and has a joint appointment in the Department of Pathology and the Department of Medicine. Today, we discuss her time in training, her perspectives on the role of physician scientists, and her experiences as an early career investigator. Without further ado, here is Dr. Anne Piantadosi. I started out wanting to be a scientist, and I think I've wanted to be a scientist for a really long time, like since childhood, even though the type of science was always um, kind of in flux. But um, I was I was very interested in virology, and I was very interested in evolutionary biology, even probably from the time of high school. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I was in college, um, I'd been thinking I was going to apply to PhD programs, and I did a summer internship at the NIH. Um, and I was actually working with a scientist who was an MD-PhD himself, and he sort of introduced the idea and got me really excited about it. Um, and he was somebody who was primarily doing research and had relatively less clinical time, um, but really sold me on the idea of how much a medical background can help you mm-hmm. in your research and, and help you pick great questions um, to study. So, so that, was, that was what really did it uh, for me, um, was, was just that experience uh, one summer. That's awesome. So, how, so, and that was in college. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so then how did you, have, did you have to change the way you were, you know, approaching your degree in order to make that happen? No, I think I had to take a few more um, pre-med classes than what I'd already taken. Um, but I had already done a lot of the pre-med work anyways, just by virtue of what I was interested in, what, what, what I was taking. Um, it turned out I had been majoring in ecology and evolutionary biology, which was a little bit of a, a less common um, major for somebody going into um, mm-hmm. med school or, or an MD PhD program. But I, 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 you know, I certainly didn't change my major. I, I think I just took uh, some additional classes to kind of bone up on the on the pre med requirements. Mm-hmm. And besides the um, internship that summer, did you do research throughout undergrad? I did. Um, yeah, I, I worked every every summer um, in research. I did two summers in research labs and then um, an additional summer uh, doing ecology research, doing field work. Uh, cool. In yeah. That's awesome. So yeah. did you think that was kind of where you wanted to go? Or, uh, I, you know, I, I love kind of the, the whole sort of macroevolutionary and ecology work, but even when I was majoring that and when I was interested in that, I knew that it wasn't quite connected enough to human health for me. And so for me, the the part that I got really excited about, and I'm so excited about is sort of the evolutionary biology of pathogens. Mm-hmm. And so even before I was thinking medical school, I think I was, you know, planning to study viruses or microbes and their sort of evolutionary interactions with humans. Um, that was really captivating to me. And then it really made sense to add on to that medical training to, mm-hmm. to put all of that in perspective. Yeah. That's really cool that you already sort of were drawn to the, you felt like that you, you wanted to do something more applied to human health. Right. Even though you weren't maybe necessarily doing that at the time. I think it's kind of interesting that you knew that that's what you wanted. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, 
in undergrad, that is a big component of it is, is figuring out like the nuances of what excites you because um, I think a lot of people are excited during college. There's a lot right. of really amazing stuff that you learn and you have to figure out like, okay, what is, even though I'm excited about this whole field or this class was fantastic, like what are the little pieces of it that I really want to carry forward into my future? Because college is for most people way broader than what they exactly. end up in their lives. Yeah, yeah right. So um, can you talk a little bit about, so did you go straight from college to the MD-PhD program? I did. I went straight into it. Nice. Um, yeah. And I'm, I'm glad I did. I mean, I think um, one of the things that I kind of talk to people about a lot with MD-PhD programs is the length of it. Um, and it's never something that bothered me at all. I actually kind of enjoyed the length of it. But um, I think because of that, at the time, I really didn't consider doing anything else beforehand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because you're going to be in school for eight-ish years and then another however residency fellowship you decide to do exactly it's a long long road long road yeah. yeah yeah so i yeah at the time i kind of didn't see any reason to delay and and i still you know for me i think i'm glad i didn't delay for the same reason that i enjoyed the whole process which is that it just becomes your life and that is your life and you're aging anyway throughout all of that time and um you know, I think the advice I try to give people is not to view an MD PhD as something to get through. Um, you can't be very kind of end oriented or goal oriented mm -hmm. as you're going through it because it is so long, not just the training program, but residency and fellowship and everything that kind of goes along with it. Yeah. Right. You just have to kind of be present in whatever stage of training you're at because, because you can't think, I mean, and it's, it's almost beyond my imagination to think, you know, 16 years down the road when I'm going to be assistant professor or whatever. Right. Yeah. No, you, yeah, you, you have to put that out of your mind. I think, um, almost completely. I did anyway. Yeah. So was that easy for you to just, just be like, here I am training. I'm doing whatever the first two years of medical school. I'm a medical student. Now I'm a PhD student. Like, how did you do that? Because I think that is a struggle for a lot of people just living deadline to deadline to the next thing, to the next thing. Yeah. I, I did, I think the way you phrase it as sort of like being in the moment of whatever's going on is exactly um, the approach that I took and that I would recommend for anybody who can do that. Um, you know, I benefited because I really enjoyed all of it. So I enjoyed being a med student. I had great med school classmates that made those first two years really fun. Um, I had a phenomenal PhD experience. Um, and then, you know, I think probably the third and fourth years of med school were where I had less fun, but that I think that was only because I was so excited for residency. And then by the time I got the kind of intern year, I really enjoyed that. So I think for me, I enjoyed pretty much every step along the way. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, there, there are always obviously times where you are focused on deadlines or you're focused through getting a particular, getting through a particular um, time period or a particular event, but um, it, it is such a long process that I think you have to kind of embrace each step of it as its own entity and as its own part of your life. Mm -hmm. And I think the process is uh, way more enjoyable if you do it that way. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, so the, there's really two big transitions, I feel like. Uh, I mean, it, it, there is the getting into didactics of medical school transition which I don't know if that was as difficult for you. I felt like the biggest parts that were hard transitions was from first two years of med school into grad school, because I have just come from being sort of knowing what I'm doing, how to study for stuff. You know, um, there were people like underneath me, like M1s. And yeah. then now you're in graduate school, you're back down as a G1, right? All of your other, all of the other students who are coming in are uh, excited, bright eyed, uh, ready to do their PhDs. Can you tell me a little bit about that transition? And then I want to talk a little bit about how you picked your lab ultimately, because it sounds like you picked wisely and ended up with a really good experience. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, that transition, I don't remember being particularly hard. I think that was probably one of the transitions or time periods that was most exciting to me. I mean, like I said, I did really enjoy the first two years of medical school, but um, being someone who had kind of come into the whole process thinking that I was 
mostly interested in research and then that was where my kind of most of my long-term career objectives were I, I think I was pretty excited to get into a lab and, and to start grad school so I don't remember that time being particularly hard in terms of transitions yeah awesome and then how did you pick a what was the structure for picking labs. I know it's different for different MD PhD programs, but you went to University of Washington. That's right. Yeah. So we did um, rotations during the summers. And so actually before my first year of med school and before my second year uh, of med school, and then after my second year of med school were when I did my three laboratory rotations. Um, and my, my PhD advisor, who was um, Julie Overbaugh, was somebody who um, I knew by reputation, even kind of coming in and was somebody who I was really interested and excited to work with. Um, and I wasn't able to rotate in her lab until the very last of those mm. three rotations. So I kind of had a lot of time, you know, I did my, my first two rotations were really interesting and great, but it's all spaced out because I did them in the summers before, right. um, before that. So I kind of had a lot of time to really think about what I wanted to do and to learn about you know, different PIs and what their reputations were and talk to students who had worked with them. And um, she was someone who I'd been really interested to work with and then had a phenomenal reputation and just really um, not just a great reputation as a scientist, because obviously I think that's important. A lot of people have that, but she had a great reputation as a, as a mentor for, for mm -hmm. students and had a very kind of student, student centric lab. Um, and so um, you know, by the time that I rotated in her lab, that sort of confirmed that I knew that I wanted to work with her, um, and it was a pretty smooth transition then to just kind of stay in the lab after after that summer. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So, so then, how what was your experience like then for your for your PhD? It was a lot of fun. I um, I it was it was a very fun lab to be in. Like I said, it was very student um, centric, and so there were. Um, at times probably always at least five, maybe even like seven or eight grad students in the lab at the time, but it was okay. still kind of a small lab. So not a lot of postdocs. But a lot of grad students. But a lot of grad students hmm. and just created a very fun culture of um, people being excited about their work and excited to talk to one another about their work and everyone kind of going through um, similar processes. There was always somebody you know, a year or two or a step or two ahead of you and they could give you advice on, on kind of what it's like to take your qualifying exam or mm -hmm. things like that. Um, and so, um, and, and um, it was really, um, you know, Julie, my advisor um, has a PhD, she doesn't have an MD, but she integrates very closely with um, clinical research teams. And so I really, that, that was when I kind of learned to love translational research. Um, and I was able to do that in a basic science lab just because of her connections and her collaborations um, with clinicians. And, um, you know, I mentioned there weren't a lot of postdocs, but there were clinical fellows um, who joined her lab. And so that was another uh, really great sort of um, mentorship step for me was to have access to people who were, you know, they had done their ID fellowships and then they were doing coming back mm -hmm. into the labs themselves. Um, and so that was, that was great for me to kind of see that progression of what happens after you get your MD? Exactly. How do you, what, what's it like to get back into research from that? Right, exactly. Because it's a long, and it's a long time. You do, you do two years and then you did your PhD and then and two then years. Two years again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's awesome. So did you always know then that you wanted to do, because I think ultimately you do, you, you did ID? Mm -hmm. I did right. ID. Yeah, I always knew I wanted to do ID. Um, there was a little bit of time in med school where I was trying to decide of maybe pediatrics mm -hmm. and kids ID versus adult and adult oh, yeah. ID, but that's about as far as my imagination went, kind of. <laughs> that's good. I mean, yeah. I feel like I feel like that's um, sort of nice because I think in third year when you're getting thrown around in all these rotations to have kind of a North Star that like, I think I'm going to do this. Yeah. It is kind of helpful. It was very helpful. I mean, I think if... If, if I hadn't been committed to research, there were a lot of things in that third year that I enjoyed, like even my surgical rotations. Mm -hmm. um, but trying to have this convergence of what am I interested in scientifically and what kind of clinical fields fit with that was very helpful mm -hmm. to kind of keep me focused. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I guess the uh, second transition that I want to talk about is that transition from being in the lab to going back to med school, which is what I'm in the middle of right now. And it's it's just completely different. 
it's a completely different environment and, and, and it's a great environment, but it's, it's very bizarre going from where you really feel like, or at least I, I felt like, okay, well, I know my project and I can go to these meetings and give talks and feel comfortable doing that kind of stuff. But like now I am terrified of presenting in front of my team of three people on internal medicine rounds, right? Yeah. It's, this, it's, it's a very strange transition. How did that go for you? Yeah, that was a hard transition. So, so the, the transition the other way was easier. That was a hard transition for me. And, um, you know, it's inevitable you're going to have uh, a ton of self-doubt and a ton of insecurity because you've forgotten everything that happened in the first years of medical school. It is a totally different and new environment that um, people in medical school maybe feel a little more prepared for or just a little more thinking, thinking along those lines. Um, and I think I had a realization, probably not until I was an intern, um, that I think helps put that transition in context, which is... Um, you know, people think of like, okay, you're a medical student and, and you're in med school. And then that's sort of the equivalent of being a PhD student and being in grad school. Um, but I actually don't think those two things are equivalent. I actually think med students in med school is maybe more equivalent to kind of undergraduate. Um, and then by the time that you get to internship and residency, that's where you take mm -hmm. on the characteristics of a grad student. That's where mm -hmm. you start to really have to like think for yourself and make consequential decisions that you're unsure of. Um, and you really kind of have that, for me, that same feeling and same experience that I had as a grad student didn't happen in med school. It happened mm -hmm. in intern year. And so I think viewing that transition is you're not just going back to med school. You're almost kind of going back to being an undergrad. You're, mm -hmm. you're, you're even taking a step further back than I think we already think you are. And in one hand, that's frustrating because you're taking this huge step back. But on the other hand, it's it's kind of a relief to think, okay, my role is really just to be here as a learner and to to you know observe what's going on around me and, and and figure stuff out. My role is not to be the you know fourth year grad student who's very capable and very able to do stuff. Right. Yeah. I I think that's a very that's very well put. I wonder if a lot of the anxiety that comes from the P the MD PhD students who are coming back to third year is because of that exact reason it's yeah. that we think that we need to be functioning as interns yeah you know but we don't know anything we don't remember anything so right. so so like on a knowledge level maybe we're not functioning as well as the other m3s but we're worried that we should be writing more notes or seeing more patients or what or being more autonomous yeah um as opposed to just kind of sponging up all of these different specialties and deciding where I want to fit in, in, you know, in this landscape of clinical medicine, um, and, and just viewing it that way, I think actually would be a very reassuring thing for us to hear. And so yeah. I really appreciate that. Yeah, spread the word. Um, and I, I mean, I will say being on the other side of it too, where we're working with med students when I've been an attending or when I've been a fellow, we really do have pretty low expectations for what the med student is going to contribute. I mean, they they can contribute a lot and their presence on the team can be very helpful, but um, the system isn't built to rely upon them. And mm -hmm. so I think taking that little bit of pressure off also is, is helpful. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So, so from there, then um, as far as your residency fellowship, did you do a like PSTP kind of fast track kind of thing, or did you do traditional categorical internal medicine residency and apply? I did traditional and I, um, I had, uh, I had pretty much planned that all along for, for a couple of reasons. One is that I really did like medicine and I, I didn't want to kind of shorten that, um, in any way because I, I really, um, enjoyed it. Um, and, and not only did I enjoy it, but also like residency gets better and better every year. And so in some mm. ways, Taking out that third year is, is kind of a shame because it's almost like the most fun year. It's mm. when you know the most and you have the most choice um, in what you're going to do for electives and, and things like that. So that was one big reason why I didn't do it. Um, and then the other big reason why I didn't do it is because I have a family and I um, have two kids, actually. One was born when I was a fourth year med student and the other was born when I was a third year resident. And so I knew that I kind of wanted this time and this sort of extra flexibility um, to be able to have kids and, and enjoy them um, during that time period. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so, so then 
tell, talk a little bit, you talked a little bit about intern year and, and residency generally, but, but um, this is all time away from the lab, I presume. Yeah. Did you, at, at what point did you really start missing the lab? sad if I say that I didn't I mean I mean, I mean it's fine yeah <laughs> yeah I I didn't I mean I think um you know part of the process of like enjoying every step along the way the other thing that I did was really try to keep focused on whatever I was doing and so during residency I really didn't do research at all like even even a little bit um mm -hmm. and so I think um, and, you know, it's not that there's not opportunities. I think there's tons of great ways for residents to be involved in, in research, but I kind of knew that um, I was going to have a lot of that uh, ahead. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, residency, like I said, to me felt more like grad school where you're really coming into your own and you're really um, feeling capable and skilled and developing expertise and things. And, and so, um, so that, was exciting to me and I, I don't think I, I missed the lab at all. Um, the time that I didn't necessarily miss the lab, but I kind of wanted the opportunity to do research was once I started fellowship. And there, um, for me, the, the clinical year of ID fellowship was like one of my favorite years of all of training because it was so interesting. But there, what was happening is that I was seeing a lot of patients and coming up with a lot of questions that I thought could be great for research questions. Mm -hmm. And so it's, not that I missed being in the lab, but that's where it starts to kind of come together and synthesize. That's and awesome. Can, okay, like this is why I'm doing this, and this is all right. going to make sense once I get back in the lab and I can I can start some, doing some of this research. Yeah, I mean that's it's really cool because you in undergrad is when you met this mentor who is an MD PhD and says it's good to have this clinical background because it can inform your science. Yeah, but then what, how many, so like 11, 12 years later is right. like, okay, well I'm here now. It, right. And it, and it like realized it, it sort of is like, yes, it can inform your science. And now you have the training to, to bring it back into the lab. Yeah, exactly. Right. And it, um, and it, you know, I think for, for those 11 years or however long it was, I think I was sort of just trusting the fact that that would happen, um, yeah. but it really did. And, you know, I think, um, by the, for people who subspecialize, I think that's the time where it really kind of coalesces um, because you're really looking at, at clinical situations um, with a lot more detail and just a lot more granularity than even during residency or certainly during med school. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. So, I mean, it's just the, the like how long it takes, but the fact that it actually does come together, I think is, is really cool. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of us overthink things. I overthink things and think, am I, you know, doing, am I, you know, I didn't have a great day to day. Maybe I shouldn't do internal medicine or anesthesiology or whatever. Mm -hmm. The ability to trust that the, the system is set up that, that eventually after these 12 years, it will make sense that, you know, you will be start becoming the physician scientist that you sort of wanted to be when you were 21 or whatever. Right. I just think that's fascinating. Um, it is. And I will say I've, I've had that conversation with different physician scientists at different points throughout the process. And so I did continue to get that positive reinforcement and get that encouragement that it would come together. And so I, I think that is really important is to continue to have those conversations and see people for whom it is coming together, um, just mm -hmm. to keep reminding yourself that it, that it does. Yeah. How did you find those people during residency, fellowship? Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, a lot of them were, you know, you, you'll just periodically have attendings who are MD PhDs and, and primarily researchers, or you'll, you'll go to talks or, or things like that. I, I don't think I really intentionally sought those conversations out, but I think I did sort of capitalize on them when there were opportunities, like when I did have attendings who were researchers or, or things like that. Um, and I, I think, um, also keeping in mind the sort of mentorship from not very senior people, but people who are only a little bit ahead of you is really important as well. So mm -hmm. things like when you're a resident um, and you 
have a consultant in a subspecialty that you're interested in, like talking to that fellow and, and you know getting to know that fellow a little bit can be really helpful as well. So looking out for those kind of interactions, they do come up like pretty routinely, but you, you just have to kind of capitalize on them. Yeah, those kind of close peer mentors. Yeah. Um, and so, so in, in fellowship, did, did you start doing research during fellowship? Is that when you started kind of yes. building your research program? Yeah. So um, for ID, programs can be different, but my program the first year was very clinical. So um, I didn't I didn't do very much research, but I did start kind of thinking about things and noticing things and um, coming up with um, not necessarily projects, but at least sort of ideas that guided what my research was going to be. Um, so, so that year was primarily clinical. And then the following year, um, I joined a lab. And that was um, when I really kind of got, got back into the lab and started actually doing the research. Um, and I just had a little bit of clinical responsibilities during that second year of fellowship. Cool. Um, and so how did you go about picking that lab? Yeah, that, um, that was also um, a lot of word of mouth and a lot of talking to people. Um, and so, um, I mean, the nice thing for what I did is I, I stayed in the same place for residency and fellowship. And so I was able to kind of get to know a network of people and know who were the researchers at, you know, available to me. And um, again, a lot of it is reputation based on um, who is a good mentor, who, you know, it's a little different. I mean, effectively I was kind of joining as a postdoc. And so there you're kind of, you know, like I said, my first lab, as a PhD student was phenomenal and my mentor was phenomenal and had a reputation for really mentoring um, grad students and having a very grad student focused lab. Um, you know, my mentors, because I, I had more than one for postdoc, didn't necessarily have that kind of reputation, but they were excellent scientists and I felt like I could, you know, I could go into that lab with a little bit less, with a little more independence and a little bit less of that need for kind of mentorship um, excellence and and just really build a foundation of what I wanted to learn scientifically, what skills I wanted to have, um, and be surrounded by people who are really great scientists. That's awesome. Um, and did you, I mean, so this, this is sort of a more, or it seems like a more important time during training because you have to start kind of carving things off to ultimately write a grant mm -hmm. and, and, you know, it, ultimately kind of launch your own side thing so that you can split away as an independent investigator. Did, yeah. At what point did you start thinking about um, those questions? And did you have those discussions with your mentors? Like, Hey, you know, my plan is to be an independent investigator in five years. Can I take this yeah. chunk of whatever? Yeah. Um, those are great questions. And I was, again, pretty fortunate. Um, so my, my primary mentor for my postdoctoral research was Pardee Sabeti, who's at the, the Broad Institute. And she um, is very generous about having people kind of in, you know, take their own work and kind of develop their own research projects. And this is a little bit kind of um, what, I was, what I was indicating before, which is like when you're picking that postdoctoral lab, like it's let, for me, it was less about the mentorship, the being mentored experience and more about learning the skills that I wanted and sort of having that space and freedom to develop my projects. So it worked out really well that I was able to kind of develop my own projects and learn hmm. the skills that I needed to learn. Um, and I knew kind of based on others' experience in the lab and then eventually based on my own conversation with my postdoctoral mentor that it would be fine for me to kind of develop my own stuff and, and take my own stuff. And I, I think that is an important conversation to have early on, but of course it's, you know, uncomfortable and it's, you right. know, you're just meeting somebody and you're just joining their lab and you kind of um, need a lot from them in terms of learning and, and things for several years, but like you said, you're also kind of wanting to set yourself up to be independent. So um, that that can be challenging, I, I think. Yeah. Do you have any advice on how to approach that conversation? Well, I, I think um, one thing that is not just important for that conversation, but kind of throughout this whole training process is, is to make sure that 
people you interact with as mentors kind of know what your expectations and what your plans and trajectory are. Because um, as MD PhDs, I think it you are a little different, right? Um, I mean, you come in it, when you come into that postdoc lab, you come in with a certain skill set that can be really valuable for the lab, and you can offer them tons of um, great connections to clinicians and the hospitals. And, you know, we were able to set up these great collaborative projects with clinicians who I could connect with. And, um, and you bring a lot to that, to that environment that you want to make sure to kind of give yourself credit for and, and, and say, and then, you know, the flip side of that is, well, maybe, um, you know, I'm somebody that may want to spend a little less time doing my postdoc. Like I'm going to try to get to my independent position a little quicker than other mm. postdocs might. Um, and so really, I think having these conversations where you are able to, you know, acknowledge what you bring and then acknowledge ways in which you might be different or you might need to ask for additional things. Um, that's my recommendation. It's very hard to do that. And I can't say that I've always done it well, um, but I, I think that is important for somebody who's joining a lab with an MD mm -hmm. um, is to, to really emphasize kind of what you bring and also what, what you need. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And because you, you, you've been training for a longer, you sort of need that, you know, any little bit of leverage you can get, yeah. you, you should get. Yeah, no, you, you definitely should. And, and you shouldn't kind of undersell what your skills are and, and what you bring to the table. Um, you know, we were talking about transitions and, and that transition, I think for me was, was the very hardest of all of them mm. um, to go from being this like clinical expert to uh, joining a lab where all of science has changed in, right. the, in the interval since I've been in the lab before. Um, and so you do use that also is feels like kind of two steps backwards. Um, and so, you know, you do feel again, kind of insecure and you feel um, like you're going to have a lot of catching up to do, but I think it's also important to kind of emphasize what you're, what you're bringing to the table that is really valuable and really unique for, for a lot of labs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I sort of related to that note, I, I've asked several people this and I, I would like to get your thoughts on it. The way that the training is set up such that you do two years, then four years, then two years, then residency fellowship, then you're back in the lab, all of these little transitions where you sort of get comfortable and then uh, and then two steps back and now you are uncomfortable and sort of feel like you're, you know, you feel like you've sort of lost that progress that you made. Mm -hmm. Do you think that is um, important? Like, do you think that's an important aspect of training, like to teach, you know, I, I don't think it's necessarily... Any, anyone, anyone designed it that way, but, but does it kind of, um, improve our resilience? Just this like series of, of, um, of, of kind of two steps back, one step forward or three steps forward or whatever. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, I think it, I think it has to improve our resilience. I mean, how, how could it not? Um, I, I think it also, um, I don't know if humility is the right word, but sort of gives MDPHDs a little bit of humility or a little bit of kind of um, appreciation for, for their place in, in the whole kind of clinical scientific complex. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I've always, um, at every stage of my training, like really uh, finding other MDPHDs to talk to and to kind of experience things with is very helpful because I, I think we all do have this shared experience of which that's probably a big part of it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we have certain kind of outlooks and um, expectations for things that I think probably are derived from repeatedly having to go through that that setback. Um, so is it beneficial? Hopefully. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think for me, a, a big part of it has been that is a reason to kind of seek out other MDPHDs to talk to and to, to kind of share the experience with. Yeah. I mean, I felt that too, even you know, whatever, seven years in my, yeah. co my cohort of MD PhD students that I started with, they're the only people that know really yeah. what it's like to, to be thrown into this other world. And, and so I think that's really great. Did, did you have, um, was there any structure throughout, I don't know, residency fellowship for people who maybe they're not MD PhDs, but physician scientists track people to, um, 
sort of promote community within that group of trainees? Yeah, um, there. When I went through residency, there wasn't. Um, a lot of residency programs are starting to do that now, and I think they're making incredible strides and in really recognizing the importance of that. So I, I think that's huge, and I think that's important. Um, when I started my intern year, it was actually pretty funny because now that we're talking about this, I'm trying to remember. There was a group of one, two, three, four, five of us who were all MD PhDs and we all started hanging out together. And, but we were the only people in my intern class who had kids. And I'm hmm. trying to remember if it was, we got together because we had kids Interesting. and we all happened to be MD PhDs or if we got together because we were MD PhDs and we all had yeah. kids. I'm trying to remember which way it went. It's but, sort of hard because you're also a different age kind of cohort, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so, um, yeah, I mean, exactly. And so that, we were kind of a support network for each other um, that was not formal, but really made a lot of sense. Um, mm -hmm. And it was really helpful that intern year because um, the experience of going through that with, with kids was definitely a challenge. And so having other people kind of to talk to about that was, was really helpful. Um, yeah. That's awesome. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so can you talk a little bit about how you moved towards independence from from fellowship yeah. what were the steps were there certain grants you applied for and who gave you advice on what grants to apply for and how yeah um yes so um that i i think i was always pretty motivated to move towards independence. And so I sought out a lot of advice, probably even from quite early in my postdoc on, on how to do that. Um, and I think, um, like I said, I was in a lab where I really had a lot of freedom to kind of arrange my own projects from the start. And so that really helped is I, I feel like I got a lot of experience project managing and um, learning a lot of the skills that I needed to learn in a pretty condensed time frame. Um, but I, the advice I consistently got, and I suppose it's true, it certainly seems to have been true for me, is that you really do need independent funding um, to apply for, for a faculty position. Mm. Um, and for most people, that's a K grant, either a, a K08 grant, which will be more basic science oriented, or a K23 grant, which will be more clinically research oriented. Um, and so that was really, I, I applied for a K08 and, and that was really kind of the, the focus of what I knew that I needed to do to, um, in order to, to apply for faculty positions. Um, a lot of institutions have kind of a, a feeder grant into that, which is a, a KL2. And so that's an institutionally mm -hmm. awarded um, K grant. And so I got very good advice um, early on to apply for one of those. Um, and I received one of those and that, that's a two-year grant that is competitive and it's NIH funded, um, but each institution is sort of allocated a number of them that they award. And so, um, you know, it, it's kind of like a step along the way. And that was incredibly helpful for me, um, not only to have that grant, but also that was at that time um, becomes kind of a training community. So we, the, the people who were on those grants, we had monthly scientific dinner meetings, we gave presentations, we got career advice. It was just a really great career development step in addition to being a grant. Um, and so from there, trying to remember the exact timing of all of this, but that was a two-year grant. And then while I was on that, I applied for my KOA grant, um, KO8. Um, as with almost everybody, I needed to reapply um, mm -hmm. a second time to that. Um, but with the second application, once I had kind of a fundable score and I had kind of known that this was going to be successful um, is when I really started looking for faculty mm -hmm. positions. Um, and I think it's true that, that people won't really consider you for faculty positions until you have that. Um, but, you know, there's different strategies in terms of do you do what I did, which is to look kind of right away once, once you have right. a grant, or do you wait and kind of build up time on that grant before you apply? And I think people have done it very successfully both ways, um, but I, I did kind of the earlier side. What was your rationale for doing that? Yeah, so part of it was, um, was just kind of being really motivated to, to wanting to start my own lab. Um, part of it was the fact that I had been, you know, did I end up spending? I ended up spending 
four years in a postdoc lab, which I felt like was plenty of time. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and then part of it, you know, you can make this argument either way, but once you have one of those grants, it covers a lot of your salary and gives you this protected time that you can either use to generate lots of great data and lots of great papers and then apply for a faculty position. Or for me, I felt like that was a great way to start a faculty position was mm -hmm. with kind of this time period where I knew what I was working on. I had my salary covered um, and really um, kind of maximized my time as a new investigator, as a new PI um, to, to be able to start off kind of with as early as I could um, in that position. Mm -hmm. Um, so I have no idea how this process works. How do you find faculty positions? Mm. Like, is that, are they posted somewhere or yeah. like, how, they are? Okay. They are. So there's so many ways to find faculty positions. So, um, you, they're posted. You, you can, um, you can join email listservs like Word journals will send you their, um, their positions when they get posted. Um, you, there, a lot of it is word of mouth. Um, and so, uh, you know, people, you'll get, you'll get emailed from somebody who emails something like four people down where it's like, Hey, we're posting this position, tell everybody that, you know, and then oh, yeah, they know, and yeah. they tell everybody they know. So you get emails like that. Um, but for me, and I've, I've heard this advice and I, I think it's true. The way that I ended up with my current faculty position here was actually once I knew that I was kind of on the job search, you know, I, I think you have to be pretty proactive and reach out to people. And I reached out to somebody here at Emory who I'd only met pretty briefly at a conference, but we had a good conversation and um, somebody that I kind of admired and liked. And I thought, hey, I'll just tell this person I'm on the job search. And, um, you know, those kind of low grade connections that you make, those networking things that don't seem like a whole lot at the moment can really be valuable and can really pay off. And so that was what ended up happening for me. And, and this position is, um, it was really all based on a conversation that I'd had with somebody at a conference that I thought went pretty well, that I thought I would just kind of send an email to and say, hey, I'm, I'm looking for a job. Um, so I think you have to not be shy to do that kind of stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, just just keep your eyes open at, at all, at all times. Mm -hmm. So, so you, you ultimately ended up here. Yeah. Um, what, was there any thought of staying at your original institution and what, what was your rationale for moving versus staying? Because I think a lot of people struggle with, I've seen a lot of people kind of struggle with, should you stay? You're already comfortable. You know, the infrastructure, but on the other hand, a lot of times the startup's not as good, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, um, there are really compelling reasons to do both. And I think um, for me, um, you know, when you're a trainee at an institution, you're always, I think, a little bit viewed with that trainee lens. And it's very hard to kind of escape from that. Um, so for me, I kind of felt excited and, and comfortable to, to go out somewhere new and to, to um, not stay where I was. Um, it is very hard to give up uh, all the connections and all the groundwork that you've laid for various things. Um, that That is a real trade-off that I think you have to think very carefully about. Um, I'm somebody and my family are people who kind of don't mind moving around and we like different areas of the country and we've lived in different places. And so um, I had kind of known all along you know, I, I moved from um, Seattle as a as an MD PhD student. I moved to Boston for residency and fellowship, and I kind of knew that I was going to have another move after that. And for me, the decision point came: should I move after residency and then move to a place where I want to do fellowship and then I want to try to stay on as faculty, mm -hmm. or should I go to a place where I'm going to do residency and fellowship and then move after that for a faculty position? Because I kind of knew. That I was going to have that one additional move, um, and I just decided it made more sense to do residency and fellowship together, and then move after that. Um, but I think there's a lot to be said for um, experiencing different academic institutions and uh, not staying in one place for the entire time. Um, so I think, regardless, I, I think there's great reasons to do a fellowship and then stay on as faculty, but. If that is kind of your thought process or your plan, I, I think it's really nice to experience other places in the meantime, then, you know, go somewhere different for residency or, or try out different things. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, 
I mean, it, it is really amazing that plus, plus you make more of these little connections that you never know yeah, are going to be helpful instead of staying in your little bubble. Completely. Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, so how was the move to Emory? And then um, this was when, so you, you moved to Emory and, and then started, um, started your lab and started hiring people and getting equipment and all of that. That, that was a process that started here. Yes, that was a process that started here. And so um, I'm, you know, I'm going to be feel unqualified to answer this question, because I think it'll take a little while to see how I've done with all of this, right? Um, These are exactly as you said at the beginning, things that you don't really learn in terms of setting up a lab and um, personnel management and hiring and kind of all these skills that somehow we don't manage to acquire despite our years and years and years of training. Mm-hmm. So um, the jury's still out on, on how well it's gone for me. But um, yeah, I, I moved here. Um, I didn't really try to do too much of that in advance of, of coming here. Um, the one thing that I did uh, a little bit before coming here that was helpful was just get to know people. So um, I you know, came for interviews and I um, made connections with different people here who would end up being collaborators and, and people that I worked with. And that was very helpful. Um, but I didn't really do any of the logistical setup, um, before I got here. So, um, when I got here, you know, the main things you have to think about, I think are, are the physical lab setup is, is really important. Um, it takes a ton of time and energy, but, uh, really need to put a lot of thought into it. Um, but it, that can be very fun. Um, and then the, the personnel hiring and sort of figuring out, um, you know, what, what you want to do personally yourself still and what you want to get people to help you with. Um, and I, I think that's a helpful way to think about it is, you know, who am I hiring first and, and what parts of my research am I going to still kind of maintain control and ownership over mm-hmm. versus what parts am I going to outsource now to the, to the people that I'm hiring or, or working with. Yeah, that's awesome. So um so who what what kind of position do you hire first do you hire technician do you try to get a grad student or a postdoc yeah so i hire technicians first and i actually um i did one kind of smart thing which is that i hired two technicians relatively close to back to back to one another um and one person um, is really is my lab manager, um, and I wanted somebody there who was going to really help me set up the lab. So mm-hmm. it wasn't like I came in and wanted to have to figure out all all the lab setup stuff myself. I hired somebody who I thought would be very effective in helping me set up the lab, and that turned out to be the case. Um, and then um, probably within five or six months after hiring that person, I hired another lab technician to really um, take on a lot of the lab work. Uh, on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, students, I think you can't really plan to kind of take students early because um, there's a lot of process in terms of applying to grad programs, getting rotation students, getting to know people. Um, I think that process is, is just a bit slow. So um, I've, I've had um, a graduate student who's rotated with me, which has been great. Um, and then I'm starting to have some undergraduates uh, join the lab. So I think the students part for me has to just flow a little bit more um, just naturally, however it goes. Um, The other strategy that I think a lot of people start with is they hire a postdoc uh, very early on. Um, And I've been here for a little over a year and I'm just now looking for a postdoc. So I think I've been a little bit on the slower end of that. Um, But I've been able to be slower on that because I've really capitalized on collaborations. Um, I've had clinical fellows work with me and other collaborators who I think um, have helped me get ahead of of where I would have otherwise been. Um, Mm -hmm. That if if I didn't have those people to work with, uh, postdoc might've been more more critical. Um, But uh, just kind of based on the types of projects that I've been involved with, I've been able to get a lot done um, with working with collaborators rather than necessarily a postdoc or a student. Mm -hmm. Well, that's awesome. Um, I, I guess in the kind of closing minutes, I wanted to talk about you, you touched on this earlier about how you have to think of yourself, I guess, as a physician scientist, as sort of in a unique career path relative to people who are, are clinicians or, or, um, 
straight researchers who don't do any clinical time. Uh, could you comment a little bit on where you see the physician scientist fitting in that, in, in the medical scientific kind of um, infrastructure that exists? Now, what is, what is their utility and kind of what do you think the future holds for physician scientists? Yeah. Yeah. I, that is such a good question. I think um, there's a lot of ways to answer that. And I've seen physician scientists who are expert clinicians and really not focused on research and that kind of becomes their passion. And, and that's great. Um, I've seen physician scientists who kind of go really deep into basic science um, and, and don't worry as much about the, the clinical aspects of it. And that's great. So I think you know, the nice thing about being a physician scientist is you have a lot of different pathways open to you. Um, but what I'm trying to do and, and what I, where I think this, you know, our skills can really be put to the best use is at this interface between clinical medicine, not only clinical medicine, but clinical research and basic research. And I think one of the great things that we can really do is, is help bring science closer to the clinic. Because a lot of researchers, I think, um, value uh, having access to clinicians, having access to patients, to patient samples, to clinical data. Um, that's all really important for a lot of scientists. And I think um, we make that connection so much easier. So, um, you know, for me, I'm, I'm really kind of right in the middle where I, I work with clinicians, I do a lot of translational research, and then I also kind of talk with and, and work with basic researchers. And I can really see that added value of serving as that link and serving as that connection. Because I think um, scientists really, really value and really want to make their work uh, have an impact clinically. Um, and having a, a basic scientist maybe talk to a clinician, you know, it can happen, it can work out, it can be fine. But I think having us kind of um, in that communication stream can, can right. be really effective. Yeah. We've spent time kind of learning both languages. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It is. They are each their own language and mm -hmm. each their own culture. And um, I think you kind of can't, it's easy to take that for granted once you know them both. But right. I think people who only know one or only know the other. Right. Well, I want to thank you again for taking so much time. This was really wonderful and it was awesome hearing your story. Um, so um, thank you. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. This is um, very fun to talk about and uh, really appreciate what you guys are doing and um, have certainly learned a lot from your other episodes and your guests. So thank you for this work. That's our episode for this week. Our thanks to Dr. Piantadosi for being on the podcast. Check out her faculty page linked in the show notes and follow her on Twitter at Ann Piantadosi. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, subscribe, and share us with others you think would appreciate this content. If you have time, please leave us a review on iTunes. And for more from the team here at Behind the Microscope, head to our website at www.behindthemicroscope.com. Behind the Microscope is executive produced by Joe Banke, Carrie Jansen, Michael Sayeg, and me. Our faculty advisor is Dr. Brian Robinson. I'm Bijan Sadie. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.